All right. Um, these uh, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday, uh, Pastor Brent wanted us to go over the mission statement. Um, which is all, it's three Sundays, it works out pretty good. I think when we get into the new year, we're going to pick up a, a, a book and start going through a book. But he wanted to finish out this year with some topical messages and really dig into this mission statement that we uh, um, have here at Country Oaks. And I just wanted to tell you guys, as we were putting this mission statement together, we really wanted a kind of a clear three-step process of what you do, just on a shallow level of what you do when you come here at Country Oaks. Um, and, and for you guys that might be new or just starting to come back to the church or, or just new Christians, we wanted to make clear how you get involved in the church. And so the three steps are adore, learn, and love. And we really wanted the adore to highlight what we do Sunday morning. So you come to church each Sunday and we worship and, and learn and, and love on each other Sunday mornings. But the next step, learn, wanted to focus on a, a little bit more of an intimate groups. So small groups, community groups, or Sunday school. If, if you're new, we, we encourage people not to just come Sunday morning, but get involved in an intimate group. Our church is so big that if you, sometimes you might get lost or you might not be a familiar face as much so as you would be in a small group where people can get to know you and know who you are. And the next uh, um, L is love. After you get involved in a small group of some sort, we would encourage you to serve somehow. In WANA, children's ministry, um, if you have some, some giftings that we could use uh, through the church, soundboard. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, and uh, so that's the three steps. We just want to be a clear process. If someone's new, um, we'd like to see you just get involved more than just coming Sunday mornings. But at the same time, we wanted to take our mission statement to be uh, steps deeper and theologically rich. So that's a shallow end of what we'd like to see. A little deeper end, starting at the, the uh, least, is we're all about Jesus. And in that all, we have at Country Oaks, we are all about Jesus. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. And those words were carefully chosen and placed together. Um, today, we're going to be looking at the second or the first L the second uh, point, and that's uh, learning together from Jesus. Learning from Jesus. Let me read what we have under learn. We seek to challenge each other to trust and obey Christ fully by learning what um, God's word says and then living out his truth in our daily lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we seek to do life together on Sunday morning in community groups and Bible studies, we will encourage every individual to learn to be a servant in the church, our community, and the world. This morning I have two goals, two arguments that I'd like to make. The first argument is this, that you can't love, or that word adore, which is our first A. We, you can't adore, you can't love God without loving theology and learning theological truths. Now, I purposely use that word theology because it has a, in our culture, kind of a negative connotation. And if you think that word sounds stuffy um, or unloving, it's because it has a negative connotation. I think it has a negative connotation for two reasons. One, there are theologians and people that love theology that are kind of cold and unloving. 
Um, that's just as a side note, not necessarily true for everyone. Some of the deepest theological thinkers in our culture, like John Piper, uh, he is passionate. If you ever watch one of his, his sermons, I mean, he's like bursting out of his skin as he's preaching. Um, so that's not necessarily true. Every single theologian that I had in my seminary, not one of them was cold. They all were passionate. But I think that's one of the reasons we have a ne- negative thought when we hear that word. But the second reason is because we live in an anti-intellectual age. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But I believe the majority of our biases against words like theology and doctrine are culturally driven. Are culturally driven. Theology is two words put together, theos and ology, which means the study of God. That is a glorious thing. And this is what I mean when I use that word theology, the study of God. I pray that our church falls in love with the study of God. The second argument I'd like to make is that the best place to learn from Jesus is with fellow Christians in a diverse, intimate community. So let me start off by defining the statement. Let me read again, learn, and we'll we'll define what we mean by learn. We seek to challenge each other to trust and obey Christ fully by learning what God's word says and then living out his truth in our daily lives by the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek to do life together on Sunday mornings in community groups and Bible studies we will encourage every individual to learn to be a servant in the church our community and the world simply we are learning from Jesus by digging deeply into his word Colossians 3:16 says this let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, or in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Scripture is called Christ's word. It's his message. To learn from Jesus is to learn from his word. His, the word and Jesus are so intimately connected that John 1 calls Jesus the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, if you, skip down, if you skip down to verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1.1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Uh, one, commenta- one commentator Um, said this about these passages. Scripture is called the Word of Christ. It is His message, His self-expression. In other words, the truth of Christ and the truth of the Bible are of the very same character. They are in perfect agreement in every respect. Both are equally true. God has revealed Himself to humanity through Scripture and through His Son. Both perfectly embody the essence of what truth is. Therefore, to trust Jesus is to trust the Word of God, the Bible. And an attack on the Word is an attack on Jesus. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the Bible. Loving Jesus is also 
loving his words. So, learning from Jesus means digging deeply into his word. Um, so, let's define the significance. That's, that's the uh, statement. Finding the significance. Why is studying God's word and thereby studying God or doing theology so important? Uh, I, I want to sh- show you guys this by looking at a doctrine of God. Um, I, I want to do some theology together. And look at the Trinity, which is an abstract, deep, hard doctrine. It's so hard that our reason can't comprehend it. It's so complex that the only way we know about the Trinity is God revealing it to us. Yet, the Trinity is not illogical or contradiction or contradictory. It's just beyond our finite reasoning. And with something like this, a deep uh, theological truth, uh, we sometimes think, well, it is important. I don't think anyone in here would say that the, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not important. But it doesn't really affect my day-to-day life. Well, let's look at it. Let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity and see if that's true. God reveals himself as one in essence and three in persons. Again, this is not a contradiction. Let's be clear on this. This is not illogical. It would be illogical if it was one in essence, three in essence. Or one in person, three in persons. No, it's one in essence and three in persons. We just don't know how that goes together. I don't know how it works, but I know this. God is a unified diversity. He's unity in essence and diverse in persons. And man is made to image this. How? Well, let me give you one example. Why don't you guys turn to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 7. We're jumping right into the middle of the creation story. We're going to be in Genesis off and on here this, uh, this morning. In the creation account, God creates and says, this is good. And he's created um, all the way up till he creates man. In verse 7, it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God made man, and he made man well. And he gave man everything. Put him right in the garden If you skip down to verse 18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the first time in the whole entire creation account that God says this is not good. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because Adam, in his loneliness, did not image God. God is not a lonely God. God is a God of community. Adam was unity without diversity. And therefore, not imaging God. So what does God do? We'll skip to verse uh, 21. 
So the Lord, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her, her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh, man and woman. Marriage is a unified diversity. Marriage images God. This is why in Genesis 1.27, it says, just listen to this, it's so profound. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When marriage is perfectly unified in its diversity, it is a beautiful thing. Unified in purpose, love, worship, value, ethic, diverse in giftings, roles, authority, submission, personality. When marriage is a unified diversity, it is beautiful. And it glorifies God. In a similar way, when the church is a unified diversity, it glorifies God. By imaging the triune God to the culture. I want to, this morning, look at the unity of the church and the diversity of the church. We are called here at Country Oaks to be a unified diversity. So let's start by looking at the unity of the church. And Brent started this last week because the most important thing we do as a church is worship. Adoration is first. Love for God is first. Worship is our ultimate purpose. Not missions, not evangelism, not social justice, not taking care of the poor, not politics. Worship. Brent, Pastor Brent has uh, used this quote by John Piper a couple times already, but it's, it's, it's super important. John Piper writes in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. This is a book on missions by a guy that's very pro-missions. In his very first line, he writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall at their feet before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Again, Piper is extremely pro-missions, and so am I. I love missions. I want our church to get a hold of missions and, and, and be all about missions, but Worship needs to be the ultimate. So what is worship? Well, the mission statement says this. Worship is the believer's wholehearted response of all that they are, mind, emotion, will, body, to who God is and to what he, has, or what he says and does for us as revealed in the Bible. 
Worship is a passionate love and adoration for God. Worship happens when we value God more than anything else. This is what worship means. The word worship comes from the word worth. When God is worth more to us than anything else, we are worshiping him. Anything less is not worship. We use that word adore because we've, in popular Christianity, that word worship has dwindled down to just what we do Sunday morning as we sing. It is much more than that. I like to call what we do Sunday morning praise. It's what comes out of worship, is praise. But worship is when we, we have value God more than anything else. And let me give you, this is my favorite, it's my favorite parable, and I've used this parable before, but it explains worship so, so well, and it's the shortest parable in the Bible. It's one verse. It's Matthew 13, 44. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Just to be clear, this treasure represents God. The kingdom of heaven is only valuable because God is there. So the treasure is God. And a man finds this treasure in the parable... And in his joy, that's the key phrase, in his joy sells all, everything that he has to get the field, to get the treasure. There's only one way we would joyfully sell everything that we have. Your car, your house, your clothes, your TV. Only one way that you would sell everything is if what you're getting in return is worth extremely more. If it's just worth a little more, you wouldn't joyfully sell everything. You would sell everything, but not joyfully. If it's worth extremely more, you would joyfully sell everything. This parable is saying God is so valuable that he is worth extremely more than life itself. This is why we joyfully sacrifice everything for him. Even life. And this worth in God should unite us as a church. It should be the driving motivation of why we do everything as a church. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. His driving motive is God's infinite worth. To live is Christ. And death is gain because I'm with that infinite worth. So that's the A, adoration, love, worship of God. What about the L? You can't have worship if you don't have knowledge. You can't have worship if you don't have knowledge. These are carefully chosen words. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus. The knowledge of God, theology... The knowledge of God, the study of God, the knowledge of God is foundational to our love and worship. Therefore, the knowledge of God should also unite us. Look at, uh, you're not there, but just listen to Matthew thirteen forty four again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What changed? What changed that made this man have value in that field? So much value that he would sell everything. Before he found the treasure, what changed then after he found the treasure? The man's knowledge. The value of the field did not change. The man's knowledge of the value changed. In a similar way, God is infinitely valuable, but man is ignorant to how much he's worth. Therefore, we must study and learn how valuable he is. Let me be very clear on what I'm saying here. Adoration, love, and worship are more than just knowledge, but not less. You can know a lot about God and not love him, but you cannot love him without knowing him. Let me give you an example. If uh, you came up to me and you said you adore a sports team, and um, since it's me up here, we'll say the Lakers, even though this is a rough year to love the Lakers. Um, But say you came up to me and say, I just love the Lakers. You're going to know facts about them, if that's true. You're going to watch them. You're going to know them. And if you didn't know something about them, I would question your love. If you came up to me and say, I just love the Lakers. And I said, oh, well, that's awesome. You see Kobe last night? He scored like 30 points. And you said, who's Kobe? (laughs) I'd walk away and go, I don't think you love the Lakers. Knowledge is foundational to love. I'll give you another example. I love Sarah. And my love drives me to know more about her. My love started with knowledge. The reason I asked her on the first date is because I knew things about her. I knew she was a Christian. I knew she loved the Lord. I knew she was smart. I knew she was kind. I knew she put others first. I knew she came from a great family. I even knew she was beautiful. It's what drove me to ask her on our first date. And you know what we did on our first date? I took her down to Olive Garden. If you've ever gone to Olive Garden down in Bakersfield on a Friday night, you know you're going to be sitting for a while before you even get in. I don't know how long we sat, an hour and a half. The whole entire time, we just sat there and talked. Asked questions. We got to know each other. Honestly, we were studying each other. And as my knowledge grew... Of Sarah, so did my love. Let me be clear again. My adoration and my love for Sarah are much more than just knowledge, but not less. Knowledge of Sarah is foundational for my love of Sarah. In, in, in the same way, our adoration, love, and worship of God is much more than knowledge, but not less. Because the foundation of worship is knowledge. It's where worship starts. R.C. Sproul writes, uh, For the soul of a person to be inflamed with passion for the living God, this is passionate worship. For passionate worship to happen, that person's mind must first be informed about the character and the will of God. 
There can be nothing in the heart that is not first in the mind. So follow my logic here. If worship is the ultimate purpose of the church, and, and worship is accomplished through knowing God, then theology, or the study of God, needs to be taken serious within the church. The Country Oaks has done this. I hear a lot that, that people say, we need less theology and more love. We don't need less theology. We might need more love. But we need to study God. It's how we know how to love. And this is modeled in the Bible. Don't turn there because we're going to be going back and forth a lot. But Matthew 22, uh, verse 36 says this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The greatest commandment is to love God, to adore God, to worship God. The ultimate purpose of the church is to worship God. How do you do that? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy um, 6.4, this is where Jesus got this. He, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How do you do this? Verse 6. And these words, God's word, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The answer is study God's word. It's foundational for the love of God. That's what one commentator said in Deuteronomy 6. At the heart of the sacred command is the solemn duty of learning the law of God, of mastering his revelation. It's by no means a casual or careless enterprise. To master God's word is to be deeply immersed in the study of theology, the study of God. It's not just in the Old Testament. You could have pulled out a lot of different, different passages um, but it's important in the New Testament, too. Acts six one says this. Listen to this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in, their, in the daily distribution. Widows were not getting taken care of. And this is what the apostles say in verse 2. And, and the twelve, these are the twelve apostles, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Teaching and preaching is too important. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among, your, uh, from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But, as, or, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. 
The apostles knew that the study of God was extremely important. Therefore, we, as a church, cannot love God without loving theology and learning theological truth because theology is what lays the foundation for passionate, heartfelt worship. And this should unite us. We should be united on our worship of God, our adoration and love for God as a church. We should be united on our knowledge of God, our theology, our study of God as a church. And next week, we'll, we'll learn that we should be united on our love for others. But we're also called to diversity. A unified diversity reflects the Trinity. So I want to look at the diversity of the church. What do I mean by diversity? Well, diversity in giftings. Think about this. We're supposed to be one body, many members. Unified body, diversity in members. Diversity in gifting, diversity in roles. Diversity in callings, diversity in talents, diversity in age. I was told by um, someone that was, I consider very wise, that a healthy church is one that has diversity in age. If you walk in the church and you see diversity in age, it's, it, it's a sign of a healthy church. It doesn't necessarily mean there's some communities where there's only a certain age group in that community, but if you walk into a church and there's diversity of age, that is a healthy church, and I love the fact that we have diversity in age at Country Oaks. Diversity in age, diversity in gender, diversity in culture. These diversities should be celebrated at our church. Listen to the, the mission statement again. Learn. We seek to challenge each other to trust and obey Christ fully by learning what um, God's Word says and then living out his truth in our daily lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Truth of God's word should unite us. That's the first part of learn. Listen to the second part. As we seek to do life together on Sunday mornings in community groups and Bible studies, we will encourage every individual to learn to be a servant in the church, our community, and the world. Diversity Doing life together. Sunday morning, community groups, Bible studies. Once we have learned what God's Word says, theology and knowledge, we must then live out His truth in our daily lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this happens best in diversity. This happens best in diversity. Let me give you four reasons why diversity should be a priority at Country Oaks. First, we've talked about this already. Diversity is in Jesus' nature. One God, unity, three persons, diversity. Perfect harmony from eternity past. God is a unified diversity. And when we, as a church, model this, Unified and diverse is beautiful, and it glorifies God to the community, to the world. So, diversity is in Jesus' nature, but it was also modeled by Jesus. 
Jesus modeled diversity, I think, in three ways. One, he had a large group of disciples, more than the twelve. Second, he had a small group of twelve disciples that he really did life with. These became the apostles, and they were diverse. Matthew was a tax collector, meaning he used Rome to oppress the Jewish people to become rich. Simon was a zealot who so hated Rome that a few generations later, the zealots got together and rebelled against Rome and started a war against them. These are two diverse people that came together in this intimate group, unified by Jesus. So you have a smaller group of 12 disciples, but then you even have the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest three to Jesus. I think that reflects well a large group Sunday mornings, a smaller group of an intimate setting of some sort, studying and learning Jesus' words, Sunday school, Bible study, some kind of community group. And then an intimate couple people in our lives that keep us accountable, that know us better than anyone else. So Jesus modeled diversity. But diversity is even commanded. Matthew uh, 28, 19, this is the Great Commission of the church. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations. This word nations is um, ethnos in Greek, which means people groups. Diverse people groups. The church is called to reach diverse, unreached people groups. I think missions needs to be a priority in our church. I think God shows this in Acts, the first part of Acts with the early church, with the first church. In the first church, it was a healthy church. If you read about the first church, it was an amazing church. They, they took care of each other. They took care of people in the community. The, 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 the community around the church was amazed by them. They grew, started with 3,000, then 5,000, and they just can't number them after that. There are so many people. If that was happening here, we'd say, man, we are a healthy church if we grew 3,000, 5,000 in the community of Tehachapi. But they were disobedient in one major way. They hadn't left Jerusalem. Acts 1.8 says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they were doing a great job at that. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were called to reach unreached people groups. Not just to stay within Jerusalem. God wants a diverse church so badly that in the first church, he brought in heavy persecution to spread the church to a diversity of people. God takes the idea of reaching the nations, diverse people groups, seriously. It's one of the things that's going to be celebrated. I just happened to Google just to look up how many times God talks about all the nations in the Bible uh, worshiping him and stuff like that. And I lost count at 40. Revelation says there will be people from every tribe and language, a diverse group of people unified in the worship of God. That is glorious. So it's commanded. 
diversity also helps us be more like Christ. And here's why. Diversity breeds conflict. It breeds conflict. You bring diverse people together, they're gonna, they're gonna, there's going to be conflict. For us that are married, we know that. There's conflict. And conflict does two things. One, it gives you an opportunity to love like Christ. Take the knowledge of Christ in conflict and live it out. To love others, even when they wrong you. Sometimes conflict's not people wronging you. Sometimes conflict's not even sin. might just be preferences or, or something. But even when someone sins against you, it's your opportunity to love like Christ. Conflict also, so that's the first thing. Conflict gives you the opportunity to love like Christ. But conflict also roots out idols hidden within our hearts. It roots out idols hidden within our hearts. Listen to what James 4, 1 and 2 says about conflict. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's conflict. What causes that? Is it not this? He's going to answer it right here. That your passions are at war within you. The passions within your own heart come out in conflict. You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet, you want something, you desire something, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Every single time we are in some kind of conflict, some kind of fight, we should stop and ask, is there an idol that God is rooting out? Ken Sandy from the uh, Peacemakers Ministry writes this, James 4, 1 through 3 provides a key principle for understanding and resolving conflict. Whenever we have a serious dispute with others, we should always look carefully at our own hearts to see whether we are being controlled by unmet desires that we have turned into idols. These desires love to mask themselves as things we need or deserve. Need. There's not much that fits under that list. And deserve. We're getting what we don't deserve when we get grace. Need or deserve. Fortunately, God delights to deliver us from our slavery to idols and in, um, enables us to find true freedom, fulfillment, and security um, in His love and provision. And one of the major ways God does that, one of the major ways God roots out idols in our hearts is through conflict, through diversity. Here's the point. If you want to grow in Christ, you want to be more like Christ, purposely place yourself within the diversity of this church. I think one of the, uh, the best places of doing that is in some kind of small, diverse group. Become interconnected and interdependent with each other or with people within this church. And when, when conflict happens, repent from any idols and love like Jesus, seeking peace and reconciliation. Seek peace and reconciliation. That's what Jesus did. If you want to be stuck in your growth, Isolate yourself, ignore conflict, 
and never go deep in your relationships here at church. We are called to live a life in community because God is a communal God. God is a unified diversity, and Country Oak should be a unified diversity. When we, when, listen, when worship and belief, and when I say belief, I'm biblical truth, theology, our knowledge of God, when worship and belief transcends our differences, that makes God look glorious. Therefore, you can't love or adore the A in our mission statement. You can't love God without loving theology and learning theological truths. And the best place to learn from Jesus is with fellow Christians in a diverse, intimate community. We should be unified in our knowledge of God, diverse in our fellowship. So let me define the stumbling blocks. And what stops us from doing this? What stops us from going deep with God? Here's six stumbling blocks that stop people from going deep with God in learning theology, in learning about God. I took these from R.C. Sproul's book, Essential Truths of the Christian Church. And this is a good introduction to systematic theology. If you want to go deep with God, it's a good book to buy and read through it. But he has six stumbling blocks that stop us from doing that. The first stumbling block is the childlike faith error. The childlike faith error. Mark 10.15 says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Trust God like a child. And I hear people say, so that means I don't need that deep theology stuff. I just need to trust God like a child. But this is talking about trust and faith, not knowledge. So what R.C. Sproul says, there is a vast difference between childlike faith and a childish faith. Though the two are often confused, a childish faith balks at learning the deep things of God. It refuses the meat of the gospel while clinging to a diet of milk. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Be mature in our knowledge. Seek maturity in knowledge. Be a child in faith. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Be mature in thinking and reasoning. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Childlike in faith Infants in evil, mature in knowledge. Second stumbling block is is fear of controversies. Theology, the study of God, breeds controversies. It's because theology, by its nature, makes distinctions. This is right, this is wrong. 
and because people are passionate about God. That's not a bad thing. People are passionate about God and have strong convictions on what they believe. Let me be clear. Some disagreements are ugly and sinful. The church in its history has done some ugly and sinful things in the name of, of learning theology. And you know what? If you look up some theological arguments on the internet, you'll see some ugly, sinful things. But we, are, but we need to be um, clear that we avoid godless controversies, yet we embrace godly controversies. Jesus was a controversial figure. He argued theology all the time. Paul was a controversial figure. It says he debated daily in the marketplace, Acts um, 17. The third uh, stumbling block for stopping us going deep with God is the anti-rational spirit of the age. An anti-rational spirit of the age. We live in an anti-intellectual culture. And let me be clear on this. Not anti-technological not anti-academic, not anti-scientific, but anti-intellectual, meaning anti-using our minds. We live in a postmodern science that's been influenced by existential philosophy, meaning we value subjective experience over objective truth. Truth that's within inside of us, that's relative, that we think is true because we experience something, over truth that's outside of us, that's objective, that we have to submit to. This is partly why we don't like words, or at least words like these sound stuffy. Doctrine, theology, absolute truth. Christianity in the 20th century has largely abandoned doctrinal and confessional truths for um, experience, or, uh, experience and feelings. I hear this all the time, and this is not necessarily bad, but I hear it all the time. I feel like God is telling me. Usually my response, and not in a negative or mean way, is I know what God is telling you. We live in an anti-rational spirit of the age, meaning we value experience over objective truth. Um... And that can be a stumbling block. The fourth stumbling block, this is R.C. Sproul's heading, by the way. I didn't make this up. I had to look up what these words meant. Pietistic substitution of devotion for study. Okay, let me just clear what this means. Substituting deep study for a shallow devotional time. I'm not saying don't read your Bible each morning. I'm not saying just a quick read is a bad thing, but if it, if it replaces deep study, it is. If you don't understand what you're reading, you're not hearing God's words. Here's a phrase that I want us to adopt as a church. The high schoolers hear it all the time. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. Meaning, if you don't have the meaning, you don't have scripture. I read through the prophets recently uh, before I took any classes on the prophets. And as I read through the whole entire book of prophets, I, I really didn't understand much of what was going on. 
Then I took a class on the prophets, and when I brought meaning to it, I've reread it just recently, and it's brought a whole new light of what was going on. And, and at that point, I had God's word. I was reading and hearing God's word. The fifth stumbling block is just laziness. This is probably the one I struggle with the most. I have to force myself to study hard. Studying God's word takes effort. So I spent four years in seminary. I always, people always ask me, why did you learn Greek and Hebrew? To know God's word better. Philippians uh, 2, 12 through 13 says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Growth takes work. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says this, Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train or, or discipline some translations. And this is a word used for the, the people training for the Olympics in the Greek culture. Hard discipline. Train yourself for godliness. Here's something that caught me off guard as I was reading this through R.C. Sproul's book. Let me quote him. I often startle my seminary students by saying that their theological errors are sins. They recoil from this charge, um, assuming that there is no moral responsibility for making a mistake. But I argue that the primary reason we misinterpret the Bible is not because the Holy Spirit has failed to do His work, but because we have failed to do ours. We fall short of loving God with all our mind and neglect the responsibilities to apply ourselves to a rigorous study of the things of God. Now, I'm not willing to go that far, but I'll say this. If there's theological errors because of laziness, that's a sin. That's a sin. And of course, he's talking to seminary students. These are guys that are going to be pastors one day, have a higher responsibility of getting it right what God has revealed to us in his word, he expects us to do our best to understand it. Sixth and the last stumbling block. He has a couple more, but pride. Pride's the enemy of learning. Proverbs 9, 7 through 11 says this, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. It's saying you can't teach a prideful person. The second part of verse 8 says this, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. People that are wise are teachable. This is one of the things I love about Pastor Brent and Pastor Andy. I've never once came to them with an idea or, or a thought that they, they just left behind. Every single time, even if I was dead wrong, it made them stop back and go, hey, let me think about that. Then maybe later they came and said, you're wrong. <laughs> but they always step back and comprehend what I'm saying. They appreciate that, and I want to be teachable like that. Verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Humility is key to a teachable heart. All six of these stumbling blocks have pride rooted in them. Therefore, to define the solution, we need to go to the gospel. 
if pride is the reason why we are not going deep with God in theology or our relationship, the solution is the gospel. Repent from the pride, ask for forgiveness, turn to the cross for motivation, and work on the problem. If it's laziness, replace it with hard work. If it's fear of controversies, replace it with the fear of God, not the fear of man. If it's embracing the anti-rational spirit of the age, replace it with the love of the things of God. And study hard. We need to be a church that adores Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. We do this in community, unified on our knowledge of God, diverse in our fellowship. Let me pray and you guys will be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, for revealing truth to us, things that we would never know if you didn't reveal them to us, like the, the Trinity. And I know that's a hard doctrine. I know it's something that we can't even get our minds around. So why try? Because it's glorious. It's you. And you're worth so much that we should do all that we can, love you with all of our mind to understand you the best that we can so that we could live like you. God, I pray that that's the spirit of this church. I pray that we aren't stuffy or unloving, that we embrace theology and we embrace love. We embrace the deep things of you, knowledge, and we embrace passionate worship of you. That our knowledge of you, Lord, is foundational to our worship of you. Help us have that spirit here at Country Oaks. God, I pray for our church. I pray that we have a passion for diversity, that we have a passion to reach the nations, that we have a passion to live in diversity and embrace conflict when it comes, that we don't ignore it, that we seek reconciliation, that we seek peace. God, I thank you again for this church, and I just pray that we glorify you in all that we do. Amen.